Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Hey, I, I, uh, I mentioned earlier, I think, that um, I love baptism services, and, and I really do. They're so awesome in that it is exactly what FBC is all about. We, we exist for the purpose of leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus, with Jesus Christ, and, and when we see people taking that step of obedience and out, you know, outwardly, publicly declaring their faith in Christ and their desire to follow Him, that's just like touch down for me. And that makes, um, you know, the things that we do worth it. It makes it, I'm just inspired, I'm encouraged to carry on. Because some days it doesn't always look like you're making progress, right? And and, uh, but when you see that happening, then it just inspires you to keep going. And so I just wanted to say, too, that way to go, FBC, because you're a part of this, right? Um, it's not just us as staff, parents. You're taking a huge role. Others that are involved in kids, uh, FBC kids and, and youth and, and just making FBC happen, you take a part of this as well. So way to go. And I just look forward to, to where we go, continue to go with God as He continues to use us and bless us and, and draws others to Himself through this. So I hope that we'll have more and more baptisms going forward all the time. I also mentioned a little bit earlier that we're in chapter 11 of Mark. And we've been going through the Gospel of Mark since the, about the beginning of February. So we've dove into this Gospel and are tackling it um, section by section one week at a time, and today we're in Mark 11. And when you come to Mark 11, you'll see that it's comprised of a a number of different elements that we oftentimes tend to look at individually. And that's not that uncommon. Um, But I think sometimes with this passage in particular, we look at it individually, we see the different components of the passage, and, and we focus on those, and we forget, we miss the overall message that Mark 11 uh, is, is uh, communicating to us. How the Apostle Mark, or I mean the, the writer Mark, is, is giving us this, this um, insight uh, that we need to, to understand and, and not just miss in the individual components. So we need to look at it as a whole. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to begin by looking at the individual pieces that comprise the chapter, and then we're going to stop and look at the overall overarching message that Mark is communicating to us there. And I think that that's his primary message for us today and the one that we need to be most focused on. And so at the end, we're going to focus on that. But before we get to that, would you bow with me in just one more word of prayer as we ask God to come and be a part of this service with us. Father, again, this morning, as we open your word now, I pray that it will not return to to you void as, as you've promised in your word, that you would take it now and that you would use it to grow us, 
to change us, to build us into the people that you're desiring us to be, that we would become more like your son. And that as we do that then, God, that we would be a testimony to the world around us of who you are and what you have done for us and that others would come to know you as well so that we might see more and more baptisms for you. And so I ask all of these things now in your precious name and for Jesus' sake alone. Amen. All right. We're going to begin diving in right away, and I'm just going to sort of quickly catch you up to what's going on here, and then we're going to read a part of the Scripture, part of the passage itself. And so as we come to Mark 11, we see that Jesus and his disciples are on their way up to Jerusalem from Jericho. They've been on the road from Jericho and they're coming to Jerusalem. And they've reached Bethany and Bethpage, which are two little villages on the outskirts of of Jerusalem. And so as they arrive there, Jesus dispatches two of his disciples to go and get this colt that they will find tethered just inside the village, just at the entry to the village. And so that's what they do. These two go off. They find the, the colt, the, the offspring of a, of a donkey, um, just like Jesus indicated, tethered there inside the village. And they say to the owner, hey, we need this, and we're taking it. And he says, okay, and the way they go, they bring it back to Jesus. And we're going to pick it up there in verse 7 and just read from there to, to verse 10, which kind of gives us the heart of this story. So Mark 11, verses 7 to 10. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. All right, as we come to this little section here this morning, two things we need to take note of. The first is this. Jesus is very aware of what is going on. Seems like kind of a silly point, but I want, I want to underline this for you today. I think Mark is underlining it for us as well. Now, we've, we've seen Jesus talking to his disciples previous to this, And he's been telling them what's going to happen to him as he comes to Jerusalem. He's been outlining for them that he's going to go to Jerusalem and that the the leaders, the religious authorities are going to persecute him and flog him and that he's ultimately going to die. So he's obviously aware of what's going on. But as we come to this passage now, we see it on even another level as they arrive and with his foreknowledge, Jesus says to the disciples, go and find this colt tied up inside the village. And they do. It happens just as Christ indicated that it would. So he is clearly aware of what is going on. And unlike sometimes, some other times in Scripture, and even in this Gospel, where we've, as we've been reading along, we've, we've found that Jesus has been sort of generally trying to be low-key almost operating on the down low. And as he, as he comes to Jerusalem this time, his modus operandi changes completely. 
No longer is he trying to be sort of subtle, but he becomes out there, way more overt and intentional about what he's doing. Clearly, things have changed. Jesus is going out of his typical manner to approach things in a new manner. And it signifies the change in the story because we're beginning the last chapter. Christ is entering the last phase, if you will, of his mission here. And no longer is it just that he's out there and things are happening, but now he's intending to accomplish something. And we see his intention. So don't miss that there as this begins to unfold. Secondly, there's no mistaking the messianic overtures and overtones in his approach to Jerusalem, which is to say, there is no mistaking that Jesus is now assuming and accepting the designation as the Messiah. And he's going out of his way at this point to make that point overt, to draw attention to it for the people around him, the people that are observing. Mark points out that the colt that Jesus goes, has the disciples go to get has never been ridden before. It seems like kind of an odd anecdote to just kind of toss in there. And I think sometimes being, as we're living in rodeo country here, we, we look at that and we think to ourselves, whoa, this thing's never been written. And look at that, Jesus got on it and it didn't buck him off. And we think, wow, that's pretty cool, right? Yeah, I, I don't know much about donkeys. I don't know if they buck like unbroken horses do or not. But So I, you know, like, I mean, I'll concede that's cool. But that's not Mark's point here in writing that. That's not Mark's point in making that observation. Mark's point in drawing to our attention to the fact that this, this cult has never been ridden before is to, to, for us to recognize and for his readers to recognize that this is now a sign of royalty. Because royalty never rode an animal that had been ridden by someone else. Because they were royalty. That was set apart for them. That was a special animal. They had to have one that had never been ridden by anyone else. And so Mark points out that Jesus is making a statement now about who he is. He's coming into Jerusalem as a king. He's coming as the Messiah. And he's not wanting that point to be missed. Also, that he would go out of his way now from his usual method, which was walking. Everywhere else we've seen him walk. He's entered on his feet to now entering riding a donkey is a clear, clear, clear allusion to Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, which is a messianic passage written by the prophet Zechariah years and years and years before. There it says, Rejoice 
greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Everyone there would have recognized the parallel. Christ now riding to Jerusalem on this unbroken donkey. And Zechariah's writing. And what's more is that this message, this information, would filter quickly to a special audience that I think Jesus very definitely intends to get the message. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Whereas to this point, Jesus has been trying not to draw attention to himself. And where he's been hesitant in the past in revealing his identity, here now, he seems very deliberate. And I think something more too. And this is me reading into it, so take it for what it's worth. This is me reading this passage. And I think I sense a difference here. I, I see Jesus being assertive now about an agenda that he has. Whereas in the past, again, we could be forgiven for thinking that it's been just unraveling in front of him, unfolding Almost by happenstance, he goes to an area, a region, these things happen. He goes to another area, these things happen. And it just sort of seems to happen. Well, now all of a sudden, we're seeing Jesus take the lead, take the reins, so to speak. And he's going to accomplish some things. He has an agenda now. And he is working towards an outcome. And I think that this is important for us to note. And again, we'll come to it in a few moments. And this continues on as we go to the next section from verse 12 to verse 25. Again, we see Christ's intention, His decisiveness, His purposefulness as we read here. And this is a little bit longer, but I want to take the time to read it all. And then we'll make a few comments on it after that. Starting in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Take note of that. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and, and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, 
My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began to look for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Unfortunately, for the sake of time, we're not going to be able to unpack all of this like we probably should. But I'm going to make a, a few comments on each of the different elements that are contained in this section. First of all, with regard to the cursing of the fig tree. This is Christ's last miracle performed in the account of Mark. And it's his only miracle of destruction. Up until now, all of Christ's other miracles have been miracles of restoration. But here, it's a miracle of destruction. As we see, he curses the tree and it dies. And often, there's a misinterpretation around this account. A misunderstanding. As we read it, and Jesus comes across perhaps as vindictive to us. It says that he was hungry. And so that he looked for this fig tree. Looked to this fig tree and, and went to get something to eat. But then he curses it because it has no fruit on it. And it dies. And we look at that and we think, well, who is this, who is this guy? That's kind of selfish. That, that doesn't seem right. Just because it doesn't have any fruit on it that he would curse it and, and kill it? That seems angry and, and wrong, vindictive. But as we dig into it a little bit more, we find that really it's not. And in fairness, there's a number of different ideas as to what's going on here in this passage. And you can do some research and find out what some of the different explanations are as to what's up here with this. But I'm going to give you what I believe and what I've found, I think, makes the most sense. So, figs are interesting trees. What happens is, after the harvest, after the mature figs have been harvested, then later in the fall, what happens is, the tree, in a sense, rebuds, near as I can understand it. And it starts to repeat the process which then sort of pauses over the winter until spring, when these buds, which are called pagem, 
start to swell. And these infant figs, if you will, start to grow. They're not mature fruit yet, but they are apparently edible. And so it would seem that this is what Jesus was headed for. He's going to get some of these pagem. And what happens is when these pagem arrive and start to grow and swell, that then after that, then come the leaves. The leaves bud and sprout out. And so you see the tree come into leaf. Sort of backwards to what we're familiar with. We're usually... The leaves come first and then the fruit afterwards. But this is a little bit different. However, the thing is, is that a tree, a fig tree in full leaf then, in essence, is advertising the fact that it has pagem ready. That that there is something on it to be eaten. And so Christ comes along hungry And decides, hey, there's a tree. I can see it. A fig tree with leaves. There's pagem. I'm going to go and get something to eat. But upon arriving at the tree, he recognizes that there's nothing there. There's nothing to eat. So this tree then falsely is advertising, if you will, that it's a fig tree That there's something there of value, i.e. figs, when really there's not. It's it's saying that it's viable, that it's legitimate, but it's not true. It's worthless. And Christ comes along And sizes it up for what it is and pronounces a judgment on it as to what it is. It's a worthless tree. Claims, it makes claims to be a fig tree. But there's no figs. Now, pay attention to that because we're going to come back to that in a few moments. The next thing, though, that we need to look at is the altercation that Jesus has in the temple. We'll have to fly here. Okay, there's a notion out there, I'm sure that you've run into it before, that Jesus is just a good teacher. He was just a good teacher. Had a lot of good things to say. A lot of good information. But I think that this passage comes along and I think it flies in the face of this idea that Christ was just a good teacher. Because good teachers teach. But Jesus comes along and He responds. He acts. He comes into the temple and sees abuse going on. And He doesn't teach that it's wrong. He dives in and starts to take care of it. And demonstrates that this is not right. Jesus is not a, just a good teacher. Today, we need to understand that. He's a reformer. He's a revolutionary. He is here to accomplish something. To set a system right. To recalibrate it. 
put it back on the right path, the right tracks. Not just to inform us that it's off the rails. And we need to understand this too, that his actions here are a repudiation of not only the merchants, not only the merchants that are involved in this swindling and cheating that's going on as they do their business in the temple, but it's a repudiation of everyone, people participating in it and allowing it to happen, and particularly, 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 specifically, the religious leaders that are allowing for this to happen and in many respects have provided for it to happen. Jesus comes along and and looks at the temple and says, the temple has gone off the rails. It is no longer the focus of the temple to lead people into a relationship with God and to help them to worship God. But rather it's become a place of business. It's deviated from its true spiritual purpose and practice into an economic enterprise. So Christ's actions are an indictment of all that are involved in that and all that are allowing that to happen. Everyone participating in the compromise and the corruption of the temple away from its true purpose, its original intent, and particularly an indictment of the religious authorities. Number three, prayer. We come to the end of this little section and we see Jesus speak into prayer. This is the only time that Mark comments on prayer. And we can pick up a few things here quickly. And we should spend way more time on this point alone. But suffice for a couple of comments this morning. Number one, Jesus points to two things here that are necessary for effective prayer. The first is faith. That we have to have faith in whom we are praying to. And secondly, forgiveness. That we would forgive those that have wronged us. Jesus comes along and says that for effective prayer, these things have to be in place. And if then they're not in place, well then we can do the math, can't we? The other thing that we need to understand here and recognize, and it's perhaps a little bit more subtle, is the implication of Jesus that his followers will be praying people. He's talking to his disciples. And he says to them, whatever you ask, whatever you ask for. And then he says, when you are standing, which is to say, not if you come in prayer asking, and not if you're standing in prayer, but when, when you are praying, Jesus' implication is that we are going to be praying people that His followers pray. Church family, that's something that we want to represent us as FBC. That everyone that calls FBC home would be praying people. That we would be praying about all kinds of things. But also, specifically, that we would be praying for three people that don't know Jesus yet. We want that to be a characteristic of each one of us. That we would have outlined. I would encourage you right now, if you haven't already, 
Take out your phone. Don't mind me. Take out your phone. Put a reminder in it to pray for three people that don't know Jesus yet. If you don't have a phone with a reminder thing on it, or you don't know how to run it like me, then take a note. Put it on your mirror in the morning where you'll see it first thing. And remind yourself to be praying for people that don't know Jesus yet. And then pray with confidence. And make sure that you've forgiven anyone that you've had wrong you in some way. Verses 27 to 33. In your Bible, it probably will come under the heading of the religious authorities question Jesus' authority or something to that effect. For all intents and purposes here, in His arrival into Jerusalem and into the temple, Jesus has positioned Himself above the religious authorities. Clearly, He's come in and superseded them here in this. As He arrives on this unbroken donkey as a king, as the Messiah coming into Jerusalem. And then, as He's gone into the temple and taken decisive action, judging what is going on as wrong, as unacceptable. In both of these acts, he sent a clear and decisive message, particularly again to the religious authorities, saying that I am the Messiah. And you guys are out of touch. Wrong. You've missed out. Unsurprisingly then, that results in a response. It provokes a response from the religious authorities. And not just some of them. We've seen that happening along the way. They've sent some of the guys out from Jerusalem to the various regions to try and take on Jesus. Try and put Him in His place a little bit. Put down this uprising before it gets going any further. But that hasn't worked. Here now Jesus is right on their turf and they all come out. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders. And they arrive and say, hey dude, who are you? And by what authority do you show up to do all of this? And Jesus engages in a, in a common practice at the time. It's not that he tries to dodge the question. He asks a question in response, which was a typical sort of a strategy. And implied in the question that Jesus asks is that the answer to the question that I've just asked you is the answer then to the question that you've just asked me. And so he says to them, by whose baptism then does John, is John involved? Where, do, where does that come from? From God or from man? What's the story? The, the, the religious officials don't want to respond because if they say, well, it's from God, well, then they can't oppose Jesus. But if they say it's from man, well, now we're in a trouble because the people are going to uprise. There's going to be a problem. There's going to be a revolt. And so instead of answering the question, they dodge it and they say, well, we don't, we don't know. And so Jesus dismisses them. 
and says, well, then I'm not answering you either. And implicit in it, I believe, is the answer. We all know what the answer is, everybody. We all know what the answer is. Whether you want to answer it or not, you and I both know what the answer is. Which brings us then to the overarching message. As I mentioned earlier, I think that typically we tend to approach this passage from Mark in a fairly piecemeal fashion. We focus on the crowd praising Jesus as He rides into into Jerusalem and we go, yeah, yay. And we miss the fact that inside of Jerusalem, in the temple, people don't even recognize Him. In the Gospel of Matthew, it says that they had to ask who this guy is. His followers have recognized Him, yes. But as He arrives at the temple... They don't recognize Him. The temple has not been doing its job. We see Jesus clearing the temple and we interpret that as Him simply restoring some things that are out of balance, out of alignment. Putting them back into a proper order. And particularly with the ones that are trading. When we miss the fact that he's pronouncing judgment on them as well, and the religious authorities every bit as much and more. We hear him saying, Jesus saying in the temple, that my house will be a house of prayer, but we miss the fact that he also says in that same quote, for all nations. We're puzzled by the cursing of the fig tree, so we just try and ignore that and walk away. And in so doing, we miss Mark's bigger message, which is this, that Christ's judgment is now on the temple and thereby also on us and the religious authorities that have participated in making the temple worthless. Of which now we understand that the fig tree then serves as an an object lesson, a case in point. That it puts on this display, this show of being something significant, of being something legitimate, when in fact it's worthless. And the tree demonstrates, it represents the temple, it represents us, that miss the fact, that play games with our faith and with God. Moreover, this marks the beginning. Now, the dissolution of the temple as the center of worship and its replacement by Christ Himself. No longer will the temple serve as the primary focus of our faith. But it will be Jesus Christ Himself. These aren't just random events. They're not just happenstance. This passage clearly marks Christ's intention to initiate the final phase of His revolution of man's relationship to God. The temple will be torn down in short order. But He is about to be raised up as the new temple. The ongoing shedding of blood of animals will end. But His blood will replace it. Christ's blood Himself will replace it for the forgiveness of our sins once and for all. And here, Christ again proclaims That God is not just the God of the Jews, but is the God of the Gentiles as well. Is the God of you and me too. As he says, 
that it will be for all nations. He will be for all nations. This morning, quickly as we end, who do you say Jesus Christ is today? Who do you say He is? As we've been going through Mark, are you coming to that point? Those of you that have never heard of this stuff before, are you coming to this point where you recognize that He is God, that He is not just a good teacher, that He's not just a good guy, but He is the Son of God come to save us from our sin? And for those of us that claim to be followers of Jesus Christ today, do you see Christ's intention? Do you see His purpose? He is not just showing up, randomly running through life, encountering things as He goes, dealing with them as they occur, but rather that He has come on a mission specifically to accomplish what the temple could no longer do, to replace what was being corrupted with Himself, which would not be corrupted anymore, so that He could accomplish for you and I our salvation, and therefore demands now that we respond to Him. That we can't just admit it, acknowledge it, and not change. But that if He is Jesus Christ, God, come for man, His mission is then for us as well, and we have to be different people. The people that He calls us to be on account of the fact that He is God. We cannot be worthless fig trees with leaves pretending to be religious people, pretending to be people with a relationship with God when we don't demonstrate the fruit. When we don't walk the walk. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I beg you, God, please, by Your Spirit, would You speak to us today? Don't allow us to be the same people that arrived here this morning. For those that don't know You yet, Lord, I pray that You would reveal Yourself to them. That You would bring them back again even as we continue on through Mark so that they might become familiar with who You are. That they might be able to make that decision for themselves that You are God. That Jesus was God in the flesh. And Father, for the rest of us that are followers of Yours, please, 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 Lord, don't allow us to become worthless fig trees that don't produce fruit. That put on a show. Make big demonstrations. And build facades but underneath or have nothing to show for it. And I pray this, God, all, all for Jesus' sake and in His name. Amen. You're all still looking at me. Okay, so listen, I'll tell you one more thing. Two more things. First of all, this. Come out tonight, because we've got the Bulgaria missions team presentation tonight. They're going to tell us all about their trip. It's going to be excellent, so don't miss that. I'll see you tonight. And it's Donut Sunday, so go have a donut. See you next week.